Welcome to the Long Thread Podcast about spinning, stitching, and weaving by hand. This series is sponsored by Long Thread Media, publishers of Spinoff, Piecework, and Handwoven magazines. Find us online and subscribe at longthreadmedia.com. I'm your host, co-founder Ann Marrow. I'm here with Deb Menz, who's a fiber artist, spinner, and teacher. Welcome, Deb. Hi. Thanks so much for, for being here. Well, I'd love being here. So I first met you when I was a spinner and you were teaching a color class. And color is something you're really known for teaching. Can you tell me about that? I love color. And I got into teaching color because all of the books had lots of big words in them that nobody could relate to. And I wanted to make color approachable. I wanted to make color understandable. And I wanted to spread the word that it wasn't complicated or awful. So, yeah, that's just been my focus. And it's been something that I think has really, you know, defined your own work and also your teaching. You you sometimes call yourself color girl, I think, right? Yes. <laughs> um, because everything else was taken up and that just seemed to be an apt description. So, yeah, color girl. So how did you learn about using color for yourself? I was in a program called retailing in um, at Miami University, and you had to take a year in their what they considered art basics. And so I took a whole semester on color theory, and we used gouache paints and no book, um, just gouache paints. And he would give us assignments, and we had to do presentations for a semester of all kinds of different color interactions. And that started my fascination with color. Then as a production weaver, um, I would do 25-yard warps of basically a colorway. Then my I would choose my wefts by analogous colors, warmer than the colors I was using, cooler than the colors I was using. Then I would use complementary colors, same value, different value. Then I would use different combinations. Then I would come up with a weft that didn't relate to any of those things at all, just to see what would happen. And in my first hundred yards or oh, probably 10 warps, I learned so much about color, learned what I liked, what I didn't like. And the passion came, went from there. And then I started applying those same concepts um, with how I carded fibers for spinning. And it just kept going. So you said that there was a class in color theory, and then there was also what you liked when you were weaving. How did those things kind of come together? How did the, the, your, your eye and your appreciation match up with sort of your academic study? Oh, I think I threw the academic study out the window because they seemed way too, too many rules. And um, still to this day, I don't like rules. I like suggestions. And whether you like or don't like a thing has nothing to do with the rules. That's a personal um, aesthetic that you have. Some people like very big, very bold combinations of color. Some people like very subtle combinations. And different color theories can work for different adaptations depending on what you're looking for. Um, so there's no right or wrong with any of this. It depends on what works for what you're doing at that moment. And I guess what I teach 
is how to recognize what you like. And if you don't like it, how do you get to where you like it? So it's more of ah, kind of a quest that you do it a step at a time. You make choices until you come up with the combination you like. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it, it does. So it sounds like you're sort of helping people use, you know, sort of the language of color theory to... Yes. It's a dance. Yeah. That, that, that you learn what you like and, and there's logical choices along the way. So you make a choice first about hue families you like. Then you make a choice about value differences or similarities you like. Then you decide from there what color combinations or color theories or, oh, you know, like complements or split complements, those kind of things you like. So if you make a logical progression with your choices, eventually you're going to come up with something you love. And it might take a lot of different choices and a lot of different sampling to get to that place. And you need to recognize what in those choices you like and what you don't, then you can avoid having to go down those different paths to get something you like. It, it really is an analysis and it's a game of just taking this and this, then you go one way or the other way, this and this, you go that way or that way. And, and the choices are endless to make it all work. But color is not something that there are rules with. You get certain, you get certain results depending on your choices. Does that make sense? It does. You know, the thing I think is very interesting is that a lot of people are, you know, say that they're afraid of color. Uh, is that something that people say when they come to your classes? Oh, all the time, because their kindergarten or their grade school um, art teacher told them you can do this and you can't do that. Both of my children flunked in elementary art because the teacher said they made that you can't put these colors together. And one of them was blue and green when my daughter was doing a weaving. Oh, you can't put those colors together. And my sassy little girl said, oh, yes, I can. My mom said so. And she gave him the reason why she could. And um, he gave her an F. My son took it black and white and he did the exact opposite. And he got an F because, no, you can't do that. Um, black and white aren't colors. And, and so he had lots of rules. And, that, and I wanted to make sure that people know that, no, those aren't rules. Those are choices. They're not bad or good. So, yeah. So a lot of people are afraid because of that. I was talking to somebody once who said that she'd taken your class and you said there was no such thing as an ugly color. Is that right? <laughs> yes. Yes. And they went out to try to make an ugly color. And as long as they have good neighbors, um, if you're working with colors side by side, as long as they're with colors that work with that and that mean when I say work, I mean that you find it pleasing. Not everyone finds the same things pleasing. Your ugly color might be my favorite color. So define ugly. <laughs> so it really is not just about color as, as one thing, but it's about, I guess, kind of a palette. Um, yeah, one color can't be ugly on its own. It has to have friends that it either gets along with or it doesn't. And it's up to you to decide whether they get along or not, because you might think that this is a fabulous palette, and I might think, oh, but ugly. And so it is such a lucid thing that, that people, it's subjective. It's all opinions. 
not everyone agrees on the same thing. We can't even agree, you and I, probably on what is red. Think about red. Think how many reds there are out there. How can you choose one as a representative of red? And every hue has that same thing. What's your definition of green? So you talked about blending and weaving and then blending and spinning. You've worked with color in a whole variety of different fiber arts. Mm -hmm. What are you working on now? (laughs) Um, The pandemic. Um, I haven't really done much. I did one. um, I like to embroider little squares. And so I had a piece that I had started. And at the beginning of all this, I did a few squares each day. And, and then I wanted to see what would happen if it devolved into less than squares, that it was just kind of chaos at the edges. And that was kind of the last piece I did. Um, I've been busy and distracted with lots of things in my life. And so what I've found has worked. <laughs> I used to dye everything I was doing for spinning. Well, I have given myself permission to support the economy and lots of painted tops. So I have this like ridiculous amount of painted tops from other dyers because number one, I wanted to support them. And number two, I really didn't have time to do dyeing. So I've been playing with different people's tops, plying it different ways, doing different things with it. Oh, in the meantime, my indulgence was I got an e-spinner. Um, So I have that also. So I have been spinning and plying lots of luxury things and making them into hats to everyone I know and scarves and little things. So that's what I've been doing. (laughs) Do you find that you approach color any differently when you work with weaving or spinning or, or stitching? Yeah, I do. Um, It's a matter of scale. Um, With spinning, it's really easy to get mud really fast because you're working at the fiber level, or if you're painting with it, not so much. Um, If I'm doing it in weaving, which eh, I'm thinking about tiptoeing back in tapestry, but I haven't yet. I put a loom back together and I'm looking at it. Um, But it's a larger scale because you have squares. I, I think of weaving as squares per inch because you've got your threads this way, you've got your threads this way, and that's that scale. And embroidery, I can work on bigger scale because my threads are number of ends per inch. And if I'm doing quarter inch squares, doing my abstract stuff, that's even a bigger scale. And so I have to, I do a lot of sampling and a lot of ripping out in embroidery that it wasn't what I thought, or I'll do layers and stitch a thinner thread on top of something to see if I can make it likable. And if not, then I'll embroider over it, or I rip it out. (laughs) So I do a lot of playing with it, because I can't just do colored pencil sketches and assume it's going to work the way the sketches worked, because it doesn't always. And I'm constantly surprised. I work at an embroidery store or an art and craft place, And I've been using some of the painted threads, embroidery floss, and I'm surprised every time I use one of those buggers that it just, it didn't do what I thought it was going to do. And I was used to using my own dyed things. And when I use that, that's like a whole nother ballgame. So, yeah. So tell me about how you got to be a spinner. (laughs) 
Um, <laughs> I was a weaver first, and uh, my husband and I had gone to a craft show, and I watched um, a spinner demonstrating at this craft show. And apparently I had some magical look on my face because Buzz decided that I should learn how to spin. So he bought me a spinning wheel and four fleeces. And so I felt a certain obligation to learn how to spin. Um, I got Paula Simmons' book of spinning and weaving with wool and um, sat that on my knee. And that's how I learned how to spin. I'm self-taught and took my first workshop was three years after I started spinning. I had all I had was a jumbo, jumbo flyer, Ashford jumbo thing. And I went to a Betty Hochberg workshop and um, Alden Amos, Celia Quinn and Betty Hochberg were all there. And Alden Amos took one look at my spinning wheel and said, uh, can I see your um, yarn that you spun from this thing? So I showed him my yarn. He threw it back at me and told me it was hog guts and that I could not take this class. <laughs> so it was like, Okay, so I went in the bathroom and cried, and Celia um, Celia saw this, and I'd never met her before she came out, and she and Betty had made Alden put a traditional wheel together, and because they felt so sorry for me, they, they really paid attention to me, and after that, I knew I was a spinner. I took that class and never looked back. So, yeah. It's funny because it's kind of the opposite approach to the way that you talk about teaching your classes where you, you sort of invite people in to, and give them permission <laughs> to do anything. <laughs> um, well, gee, um, when you have an experience like that, you either love what you got in there to do or you hate it. And watching other people, I wasn't a teacher at that point. I had no idea I would teach. Um, so when I taught, I wanted to embrace people and make them not afraid. And I wanted them to feel comfortable with whatever, with whatever it is they chose to do. My way of doing things is not the only way to do it. It's just what I have found that has worked for me. So, And so many people know you as a teacher, whether it's in a classroom or through you know, writing instructional books. So it's interesting to hear you say that you didn't start off that way. Um, no, I didn't. I came from a family of teachers. That my grandfather had been a teacher, then he was a principal, superintendent, my stepfather was a teacher, my aunt was a teacher, my grandmother was a teacher. So the last thing I thought that I would ever do would teach. I got to be a teacher because of Michelle Whiplinger. I owned, a, I was a part owner in a yarn store, um, and she was there to teach a workshop. She saw my yarns and said, oh, you need to teach this and I want you to write for me. I, my life has been other people telling me what I should be doing. And I've gone with the flow and taken their advice, and it's done well. So I got into writing because of Michelle, and I got into teaching basically because of Linda. She asked me to teach at Spinoff, and Michelle told me I needed to teach. She got my first two teaching gigs all arranged when she was out, uh, out and about and said, you need to have this person teach for you. Um, I like what she's doing. And so that's how I got into teaching. So. What do you think it was in your yarns that made Michelle look at them and say, you need to teach this? She had been out and about and doing a lot of different things at that point. And this would have been in the early 80s. Yeah, somewhere in the mid 80s. And what I was doing is I got into color in carding um, because I did a lot of dyeing with a felt maker, large scale felt maker. 
So she had this great die space, couldn't use a calculator to save her life. And so we decided that we were going to get together because I was selling my yarn at this point. And we were going to get together, dye a lot of colors because I could make the dye formulas and she had the space. And so she needed lots of yarn or lots of fiber for her felt making. So I used little bits of stuff um, for what I was doing. So I started carding multicolored things and started keeping track of what I was doing. And Michelle saw these colors because I didn't want them to get muddy. So I had a, a way I was doing striping and layering to not get colors muddy. And that's what Michelle saw. And that's what I wrote for her publication, Color Trends. And um, she says, oh, you need to do more of this. And then I was just doing drum carding and colors. And then when I kind of got talking to Linda Ligon, she says, well, you know, there could be a book in this. And I was like, yeah, right. Um, And she said, but what I'd want you to do is to do multicolors in all fiber preparations. And so I like challenges. So it was like, okay, how do you take top and do multicolored top? So I had to learn how to dye and paint on things to get that to happen. And she said, well, combing, you got to do combing. So that's how I got into doing the hackles and the top and the layering. And how could I do what I did with drum carding with combing? And I didn't want to just do formal combs. And so I started doing the um, Russian paddle combs and clamping them side by side. Then I had a company that approached me and said, oh, we can make you one of those, uh, that, and we'll call it a hackle. Because it was like, well, what is this thing? It's not exactly a comb. And so that's how we got into doing these color blending hackles. So all of that was because of the book Color and Spinning. It just kind of evolved. People said, well, what about this? You ought to do this. And there you go. <laughs> the rest is history. So it's kind of interesting because depending where somebody starts looking at your work, there's all of these, you know, different evolutions. So uh, when yeah. I first met you at at, at SOAR, um, yeah. you had you had some blends, that some, some drum carded blends that you were selling, but you were also at that point teaching about dying with a formula. How does that work? Okay, everybody was doing this sloppy dyeing stuff. And to me, I needed to be efficient. So I knew what color I wanted. And if you dump and pour and hope for the best, you can never get a repeatable color. So if I was going to have these colors I wanted in my drum carded things, I wanted to have predictable colors to go into things that are more serendipitous. So I have to be a little more accurate at some point. And dyeing just seemed to be like cooking. So why not use a recipe? So that's why I did it that way. So I didn't have a bunch of oh doggone it moments instead of getting what I wanted. I didn't want to waste fiber with a bunch of colors I didn't like. So, and it it was just so much easier to do it that way. You knew what you were going to end up with. And yes, I've done the natural dyeing and I've done the vegetal dyeing. And that's too loosey-goosey for me. Um, It's all really nice and romantic, but I don't want it to fade and I want predictability. So that's why, that's why I choose synthetic over vegetal. And that's why I choose formulas over serendipity. 
and you kind of made this catalog. You kind of tried out every combination you could think of. Oh, I haven't thought of them all yet. I've still got like um, the color by number sample books that we do. That is a guide to start with. But if you see a 90% yellow and a 10% blue, what about 92% and 8%? What about this and this and this and this? And so that's just a start. That I mean, uh, a thousand colors is like a drop in the bucket. That is not anywhere near everything. I'll never in this lifetime get there. <laughs> well, I, you know, I wanted to ask you about color by numbers, not only because that was sort of an example of you working with formulas, but it, it was a pretty intensive collaboration. So can, can you explain what color by numbers is and how you developed that, that project? Um, we've been doing it for 22 years. And I should say we, Sarah Lamb and I um, are really good friends. I mean, she's like probably one of my best friends. And we tried to figure out a way because we were both teaching dyeing. And so it was like, okay, um, what about a sample book? And what about a guide to get things started? And we wanted an excuse to get together. And so we figured if we sold these things, we would be able to have enough money for her to fly to the Midwest or me to fly out to California. And we would have an excuse to see each other without costing us money because neither of us are millionaires. So 22 years ago, we started with this. We went back and forth, back and forth. How can we do this? How is this normal? Because Sarah's idea, how she dies, is a whole lot different than my idea. So we kind of melded what we did and came up with color by number one, which is a basic book of depth of shade colors, seeing each dye color at different depths of shade, seeing um, dye colors mixed up just two colors at a time, um, seeing what each dye color looks like with black added to it, with brown added to it, with different percentages. So it's a basic color guide on what these colors do, because yellow acts different than gold, which acts different than the dull red versus magenta. So we wanted a basic guide. So that was book one, and then we did it at two depths of shade. Book two is complementary color combinations, and again, about I think we've got 800 samples in that. So we hand knot all of these samples and, and we do the dyeing for 100 books at a time. And then we can do samples. We do 10 books of each a year. We get together twice a year, except for this year, to assemble 10 of book one, 10 of book two. 10 of book one might be in the winter and 10 of book two might be in the fall or, you know, however we've scheduled it. And that's the number of books we sell a year. So how, how would somebody who, who buys this book, how do they typically use it? Um, we have a guide in there and it's for immersion dyeing. You can use the same formulas for painting. Uh, it depends on what protein fiber you're dyeing on because we're using Lanoset dyes because that's the dye we use because it works on all the protein fibers pretty consistently, and it works on silk very well. Um, our samples are only on wool from um, Henry's Attic, so you have to think about what you're working with to see if your colors are going to be the same or not. But it is just to, if you do the colors accurately, i.e. using um, regular veterinarian syringes, 
and using them relatively accurately, the colors are repeatable. And Sierra and I have tried it over and over just to make sure. And so we have tested it over and over. And yeah, we can keep getting those colors again and again and again. So if you are a production dyer, it's a way to get repeatable colors. And I know there's a tapestry weaver out there that uses it a lot for her tapestry dyed colors. So it, it, there's a lot of applications for it. And Sarah and I still love getting together. <laughs> and, you know, this is obviously a project that you work on hand in hand. Um, yeah. Literally. Um, literally. <laughs> but you, the two of you kind of collaborate in other ways. So I'm, I'm kind of interested in how you find yourself working with, with Sarah or, or other fiber artists? Um, we have kind of a daily email chat going. Um, we try to do like the, the new meetings, you know, like this, that we can see each other. Um, we try to get together, except for this year, at least twice a year, and, and that we get together and see what she's doing and she sees what I'm doing. We approach our work and we do different work. But one of our collaborations that we've had fun with is she's been doing leather handbags. And I have been creating fabric, embroidered fabric, printed fabric, or whatever for her to inlay into her bag. And so that has been fun. I've given her some old of my hand spun sweater, and she's felted it and put that into the lining of her leather glove. She does one thing with with colors, and I seem to work a different way with colors. She's a weaver. I don't consider myself a weaver. The only way I weave anymore would be more tapestry-oriented or pile, because I have embraced that, and I love doing hand-spun silk pile. So, you know, we do things loosely um, collaborative, that she'll come up with an idea, and it's like, oh, I want to try that. Or she'll come up with an idea, and, oh, I want to try, so... And I, I think I saw her, she wrote recently about a project where, you know, as a weaver, she makes these massive amounts of thrums, which, you know, leftover <laughs> waste yarn. And as, a, as an embroiderer, yes. Yes. you have, you have used for lots of her thrums. And a lot of the square pieces I do, and I do quarter inch squares and do them in pieces anywhere from three inches by three inches to 15 by 15 or even rectangles. But I, I do lots of color progressions and her thrums might give me a palette to start with, but I don't use her thrums exclusively, but they sure are, sure are a fun place to start. Um, so yes, I am the um, yeah receiver of a lot of her leftovers, which is great. And I don't, I guess I didn't think about that as a collaboration, but that absolutely is. Yes. So yeah, that's one way we do. So a lot of people who work in fiber tend to think of themselves as maybe artisans or crafters. You seem to be pretty pretty comfortable sort of moving in the fiber art realm. Do you see yourself as an artist? Yes, I do. Um, all of the, the work I do is toward a creative end, and it's not from somebody else's design. It's from something that has come in my head or... I'm a really bad photographer, but I can interpret my photographs in thread and the photograph's good enough for me to take it to the next step. So I go from abstract in these little squares to 
reproducing my my photographs in Stitch. And, and yeah, now I forgot the question. I'm talking about uh, <laughs> oh, I'm an artist. Yes, so I guess because I'm com- coming out of it from my emotion or my thought. Yeah, I'm an artist. Why not? It just seems like so many people who work in fiber you know, might not, might not totally feel comfortable about that. Maybe in the same way that they don't feel comfortable thinking that they understand color, that that having an understanding of color and expressing yourself in a way that's not, you know, making a useful thing seems like something that people who are, you know, who have been magically touched by the hand of art can do. It's working with color is a skill like anything else. Anybody, I, I, I take it to physical activity. Anybody, over a period of time, if you train and practice long enough, you could walk or run a marathon. Skills with color is the same way. If you learn the lessons and basics of how colors react with each other, and you practice it, and you practice it, once it gets it's comfortable enough that you don't think about the relationships, you just do it. That's your marathon, that, that you have come to a point that I don't think about color theories, per se, when I design something, but it's always there in the back of my mind, and it, it affects how I choose things. So once you get past thinking about it so much, then you know you've gotten there, and it's yours, and you've incorporated, incorporated it into your work. So whether you consider yourself an expert or not, if it's in your soul and you can comfortably work with it, yeah, you know color. Doesn't matter if you know the words for it. It has nothing to do with it. It kind of takes me back to what you were saying about your your children who were who were given these <laughs> rules and told they couldn't. And your approach seems to be much more about you have it's 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 kind of like the the art class we all wish we'd gotten to take. Here are all these tools and you can play with them. <laughs> I've had, when I was teaching color up at this fiber arts school um, in Wisconsin on an island, I would take, I would do a color theory regularly. And I regularly had art teachers take my class because they said they didn't feel comfortable with the color they got in college because people were afraid in college level to give them too much information because somehow they thought, that's being more creative if you made them discover everything themselves. Well, to me, you can be a whole lot more creative if you have the tools to work with that it doesn't make you a better potter if you don't know how to throw a pot. If you have to figure it all out on your own, it just means it's going to take you longer to be creative. But if you had the skills, man, you could run with it instead of stumbling around for a long period of time. So I'm just fast forwarding facts so people can go be creative. So I, I, when I teach, I don't teach people how to be artists. I teach people basic skills to use to be creative. I don't teach how to be Deb. I mean, how hard is it to, to stitch squares? How hard is it to do what I do? It's not hard. I just give you the tools to take it from there to make it your own work. Somebody else can teach people how to be artists. That's not me. <laughs> and since I since I got to know you, I, I've found that my color sense has evolved. You know, feeling like I have permission to to yep 
<laughs> to decide that I like certain things more than others. I've now gotten to the point where I'm like, oh, I think I like these complementary colors. <laughs> yes. Because somewhere, somewhere I got the idea that certain colors go, but then they became matchy matchy. So <laughs> um, throw that out the window. And um, yeah, I rarely do matchy matchy. Like I said, I've been buying all of these painted tops. And do I do it on itself? Hell no. I'm sorry. Um, no, I don't do it on itself. I always have to give it new friends because it makes it that much more exciting. And besides, people can't don't copy you because they have no idea what you did. You know? I've had people try to copy what I did, but, you know, you got to be a little freer with some things. So speaking of having friends, had you heard that the Pantone colors for 2021, there's actually two of them again this year? No, I hadn't. I don't I don't normally follow it. I knew last year, I think it was a blue, wasn't it? You should go look them up though. It's kinda of, it's kinda of interesting. They chose two. They chose a gray and a yellow, but they chose a very neutral gray and a very vibrant yellow yellow. yellow. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> they're not two colors that when you look at them together really relate to each other that much. Okay. But they might they might do something fun together. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, I, I don't even know what those color forecasts are really for, aside from making conversations. But. Um, no, they, those kind of color forecasts, I mean, Michelle was one that did the whole color forecasting thing. She was on a world board, and they determined the color of the colors that are in for interior design and what's available in sheets, what's available you know, in all of these different areas, and they have to actually pitch their colors. So remember when all of those pigment dyes were in, in for dyeing t-shirts, this may be 10 years ago, that they just started becoming popular. That was because of Michelle, that she was tooting this whole thing, earth, and all of these kind of things. And that was her influence for, and it lasted for several years. So it's it's for industry to give them something to latch on to. She was just such an amazing person. I wish you had gotten to know her. I know. I never met her. Uh, Linda interviewed her for Colorways EMAG. Uh, and I think that was Ooh. kind of, you know, toward the end of when she was working. Yeah. Yeah, I know. She was just, I met her at the right time and she influenced me a lot. She, I, she would, I would consider one of my mentors. She's one of the reasons I use Lana set dyes. She was like, I'm not teaching that anymore. Here's all my information. This is what you should teach. I mean, you know, again, one of these people tells me what to do and I do it. <laughs> so Linda, it, it'll be easy. Yes. Just, just, you know, just do it. Do all this. Just, yeah. <laughs> so for people who are, are just starting to maybe dip their toes into playing with color themselves, is there is there one piece of starting information or, or one one tip or prompt that you would suggest? Play. Even if you're not playing with fiber or dyeing yet, playing with watercolors will help. Colored pencils. I used to layer colored pencils to understand what colors could do. That could help you with weaving. Um, the warp and weft. You can see if you do yellow on one layer and orange on another and you see the lines in it. I mean, just play. Taking color aid paper and putting colors side by side and understanding 
when does blue turn to green and when does blue turn to purple? Just putting paint swatches, um, putting those out and just playing with color. Just play. What colors do you like together? Three by five cards, pair of scissors and a glue stick can do wonders. You can have, put them all on a glue, on a little paper, paper, write down what you liked, what you didn't like, play, spend time with it. The more you spend time with it, the easier it gets. I love that. Well, I'll just go do some, do some fiber play and it will be good for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can do it while you're cooking pasta. Um, if you have a little shelf or a little um, horizontal area, play while you're cooking. You can stir and move some things around, stir some more and move some things around. And by the time it's done, you just glue it down and say, oh, look at that. Just I think I would wind up with a lot of overcooked pasta. <laughs> And is that a problem? <laughs> well, thank you so much, Deb. I, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you and, and so inspiring to think about uh, what we can all go and try for ourselves. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. I've had a blast. Thank you for listening to the Long Thread Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate the show and leave us a comment on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Thanks again.